Welcome to Teachers in America, a production of HMH, hosted by our Senior Director of Community Engagement, Noelle Morris. I'm Lish Mitchell. To celebrate Earth Day this year, we have one of the four finalists for the 2021 National Teacher of the Year, Juliana Urtebe. At her former school, Crestwood Elementary, she was nicknamed Miss Earth thanks to her work with students in beautifying the school with a garden and mural. Juliana recently took a new position at Kermit R. Booker Elementary in Clark County School District, Nevada. She serves in the pre-K and special education departments as a co-teacher and instructional strategist and is passionate about language and culture. Through her work with three different fellowships, Juliana and her colleagues strive to give voice to state policies that impact education. Now, you're Noelle and Juliana. Welcome, Juliana. I'm so excited to have you. And for our listeners today for Teachers in America, we're talking to Juliana Urtebe. And, you know, Juliana, I always want to ask how you got into teaching. I know that you focus and work with students with special needs, special education. What brought you to that focus area? Was there a student that you experienced in your own school? Um, I originally studied bilingual general education, and I was teaching as a fifth grade bilingual teacher. And I had a student who was so intelligent. He would find himself often in the principal's office. But when he was there, and I found out why he was there, I would always quietly remark on his signs of intelligence and the things that he was doing. So for example, one, he was running a whole convenience store out of his backpack. He had candies and toys and all sorts of goodies. He also had in a notebook an itemized list of what he sold, his profit, his margins, all this, right? That same student had really limited English and writing skills. He could write his name, yes, no, and a little bit here and there. And he was in fifth grade. And I asked myself, how is this possible? How can a student have gotten through to fifth grade with this amount of intelligence, but still have such struggles in reading and writing? This was very early in my career when I realized students can be exceptional, right? A lot of people who have learning and thinking difference, they don't fit into a box of that learning and thinking difference. And they shouldn't be limited by those learning and thinking differences We just have to change how we teach certain kids so that we make sure that they're able to build those bridges between their learning. And at the same time in Arizona, this is where this all took place. There was a lot of laws happening that were the English only laws, basically making it illegal for schools to teach bilingually um, unless parents had all these waivers. And there was a lot of hoops to jump through to keep bilingual education happening. But where we were unequivocally allowed to use Spanish was in the special education area because we knew that we had to bridge our students' language abilities. Between those two things that propelled me to study bilingual special education as a master's program. And so I continue to see myself both as a general and as a special education practitioner. I really try to embody inclusion so that my students, when they're in my class, they don't feel like they're in the quote unquote special education class. Or when I'm in their classroom supporting them, they don't feel like they're the ones who are getting special education. We're here to support and help all students. And I think that this is an idea that's coming to fruition in education more so nowadays, where all teachers see all students as their student. Did I hear you say that there's English only 
rules or English only policies. I guess being from Florida, I thought some of that had been changed since the 90s. Absolutely. So one of the things I'll say about bilingualism is there's a wonderful thought leader. Her name is Dr. Angela Valenzuela out of Texas. She wrote a book a while back called Subtractive Schooling, talking about how schools can erase kids' identities or we can supplement their identities. You know, there's no such thing as having too many identities. We can be our truest self and always add on. So we can be Tagalog speakers and add on English. But if Tagalog is something that's important to that family to maintain, then let's help as a school maintain it. I think that's our responsibility as educators to know our students' identities and to push past what we see assimilation doing to people of color and instead embrace all of those identities and help them in whatever ways we can. And I think sometimes we underestimate how symbolic gestures really go a long way. And then to get into the English only laws, yes, in California, and they started in California and then they moved into Arizona. This was in the early 2000s. And it was a series of laws, which a lot of the folks in the human rights immigrant movement looked at as laws of attrition. Basically little laws here and there that slowly made the lives of immigrants more and more difficult. So you have laws like undocumented people not being able to get a driver's license, which makes it very difficult to get to and from work. Undocumented folks not being able to go get emergency services or access uh, Medicaid, even if they pay taxes. All of these different things slowly started making lives for migrant communities more and more difficult. One of the first laws and it started in California. Before, I used to be an English plus one model or plus two. I have students who are quadrilingual, but it was English only law, that schools were only allowed to teach in English. And what happened is that the impact of that law was that bilingual schools in lower socioeconomic neighborhoods went away because the, we didn't have the agency to fight these laws. What ended up happening is that the schools that had the agency to organize through waivers and things you could do, those ended up being in the higher economic areas where most of the students were not first-generation migrants. Those are where the bilingual schools still operate today. Now, are there bilingual schools in California and Arizona? Absolutely. But we can't forget the impact that had in our communities in the early 2000s. There's a question I have to ask you just to get it out there because I'm so intrigued. How did you get to be called Miss Earth? Oh, <laughs> I think that's the, the accomplishment that I'm the most proud of in my career. So the name Miss Earth came out of the fact that I started a garden program at my school with some other teachers and families and students. And the kids just always saw me with a farmer's hat on and we were always working in the garden and learning in the garden. And one day I looked down and one of my students on his paper had written his name. And then there was a slot for his teacher's name and he wrote Miss Earth. And I asked him about that. and He goes, yeah, that's what all the kids call you. Like, but you guys never told me. <laughs> so then after that, the kids knew that I fully embraced the nickname and it just became what kids called me. It's punny because my last name sounds like Earth to Bay. So some kids would call me Miss Earth and some Miss Earth to Bay. And for you to embrace it, I'm sure that had them all beaming. 
So now let's go back to that question of how did Miss Earth come to be because she decided to be a teacher? And tell us a little bit about that journey of getting your own classroom. Absolutely. So I was born in Colombia. And like many of my students, my family made that really difficult decision to leave Colombia due to our civil war. And I know that's very common in the Latinx narrative. And when we arrived to Chicago, the schools that were offered to us, my mom felt unsafe and unwelcomed at those schools. And so she found a bilingual magnet program that she felt would really nurture our identities and nurture our love for learning. And my mom was able to leverage her skills to get enrollment for us. And so she was a linguist and a human rights lawyer. So she taught Spanish classes and my dad, a musician, taught music class. So I got to go to a beautiful bilingual school where my parents were celebrated and included in my education. Growing up, I realized that wasn't the case for many people. And so I grew up with that concept. I wanted to be the kind of teacher that nurtured languages because I know what it's like for communities to lose their native languages. And that really just propelled me to want to be around students, young minds, and what better place to do all those things than in a school. I appreciate what I see and hear in you thinking about your parents and and they being a part of your journey. Do you remember and recall how you felt leaving Columbia, coming here And what that initially felt to you? Absolutely. So I mentioned before the Latinx narrative where a lot of folks have had to leave their countries because of war and conflict. My story within the Latinx narrative is a little bit different. My dad was born in New York. And so upon birth, I had dual citizenship for both Colombia and the United States. And my dad had language access. So I think that really changed how I saw the bridge between the two worlds, between Colombia and the United States. But yet, at the same time, I think that as a young child, your parents will do anything to make sure that you are loved and feel joy. And I think my parents did an exceptional job at that. There were definitely scary moments that I either remember directly or vicariously about things that happened in Colombia. But what I remember most is my mom's bravery. My two older sisters did an amazing job of always taking care of me and and shielding me from quite a bit. To be honest with you, all of this about our memories of Chicago's in the school has come up through storytelling in my family. And I remember being in high school and my mom shared that story with me about how she felt when she went to our schools in Chicago. And it just made so much sense. A lot of, I think, our childhood memories are embedded deep in our subconscious and it brought it out. And that was at a turning point for me when I was trying to decide, do I go into this teacher leadership academy that's available in my high school or do I explore other careers? And automatically I was like, no, this is the right path for me. I want to be a teacher. I want to explore that a little bit more with you, Juliana, and this being the youngest, what what's that dynamic like now? Because you're one of the four finalists for teacher of the year. What's your family saying about that accolade? Oh my goodness. <laughs> I think that there was an immense amount of collective joy and pride. I still can't believe it. I'm really grateful. I'm so in awe because there's 56 teachers in the state teacher of the year cohort this year. And I'm just in such awe of the tremendous and collective power that these teachers across the country and across the world have. And the finalists are just exceptional. And 
I'm just honored and very, I know people say humbled because it's ironic to feel so humbled when something like this happens, but you really do feel humbled. It's also given me the opportunity to reflect really deeply. Teachers day in, day out do amazing things, but because it's such a daily part of our lives, we forget to think, zoom out and realize the magnitude of our impact. And so I've been really grateful to have organizations like the National Board, Teach Plus, and Understood surround me, my colleagues surround me, and remind me of the tremendous impact. And I think that one thing that's really important for teachers across our country is to step into our power. I think naturally we're humble and shy about that impact. And I know for myself, it's hard (laughs) to accept that impact, but we have to embrace that impact because the impact teachers have collectively is just, we can't quantify it. And so I think that this whole process has just really brought up a lot of joy and a lot of pride. What's interesting is you saying, step into your power. You had the most amazing role model in your mother who took her power of school choice, being aware of, I don't know if this feels right, but I know I need to think about my children's education. How do I ask the right questions? How do I make other decisions? So you saw that firsthand, the importance of step into your power. I'm curious though, because I know what teachers do and the additional work and the hours put in to to get that achievement. But did you mention Teacher Plus? Can you tell us a little bit about what that is? Yeah, so I've been part of three different fellowships. I was a fellow for National Board, and then Teach Plus is a state fellowship, but other states participate as well. It's a teacher advocacy and policy fellowship where we join our colleagues from across the state, and we inform and we give voice to policy that impacts education. So sometimes that looks like teachers writing bills. Sometimes that looks like teachers testifying about bills. A lot of the times that means meeting with organizations, educational organizations, and folks who work with education. And Roberto Rodriguez, he's a CEO and president of Teach Plus, and Dr. Tanya Holmes-Sutton, she's the Nevada State Director of Teach Plus, are exceptional role models in centering teacher voice. So it connects to what I said earlier that sometimes teachers need a nudge. We need a collective leadership experience to step into that power, to echo what happens in our classrooms, because every single teacher is a leader in their classroom. And it's about echoing what's happening in our classroom and building bridges with policy. So that's what Teach Plus is all about. A lot of our fellows write op-eds. They do interviews for TV when big policy comes out. All, all, all of that is a huge part of it. And the other fellowship that I mentioned was Understood. Understood is a tremendous organization really working on shifting how we see students with thinking and learning differences with special needs. And not just as students, but as adults. And having a holistic wraparound of support for those students with their families, with their parents, with the community. And they just do tremendous work in really pushing us to be more inclusive, be more empathetic, and just have greater success in terms of our outcomes for our students who think and learn differently. Is there a policy that took you by surprise? Is there a time that you have written a bill or you've been a part of a committee that Here's how we're going to testify and talk about a policy. I'm very interested in that because educational policy is a lot of times where 
I think teachers are just now starting to think about what they need to be aware of, how they can be aware. So I'd love to hear what's been your experience. So I think what I've learned in terms of policy is just how much more layered it is than you initially think it is. And the process of it becoming policy is much more layered. Rick Hess, he's a writer, he talks about how policy starts where trust ends. And while I think that's true, I think I would reframe it to policy starts where relationships have stopped. And so what I've learned through these policies is to see policy as relationships between educators and policymakers. Policy is a very difficult thing to write. And I think that folks have really great intentions and that there's so many stories and so many people and so many perspectives to capture that it's a really difficult thing to make sure we're capturing holistically. I think I've learned to look at policy as static as something that changes based on our input. And so teachers um, are wonderful people, wonderful spokespeople. It's about just making sure that there's inclusion of teacher voice in every step of that policy. Teach Plus has done tremendous work. I'm just a tiny little grain of sand within the Teach Plus work. Uh, I know in our state, there's been things like an exit survey that one of the groups has proposed to try to understand why teachers leave certain schools What can we do to encourage them to stay and help them feel supported enough to stay? There's also been policy change and law changed in terms of teacher accountability and teacher effectiveness, teacher um, evaluation, shifting it so that on paper and in practice, it feels authentic to teachers. There's quite a bit. I encourage folks to go on the teachplus.org website and to venture in. Some of the memos that are published, not just by Nevada, but across the state are really powerful. There was another white paper that was published and it was talking specifically about recruiting and retaining teachers of color. And I thought that was so exceptional how they broke it down into very actionable steps about what we need to do to make sure that we're recruiting and retaining teachers of color, because we know that has a really uh, big impact in our students of color's learning. And in thinking about student learning across Nevada, do you project that you'll be learning about what is different from your state and other states? So, yes, this is probably one of the coolest things about doing these national fellowships is I get to collaborate with teachers from across the country. Um, Through my national board work, we support teachers across the country in their candidacy. And what I've learned is that we are all very unique. The context of which we um, serve is very important so that we can individualize. But at the same time, we have a lot of really common concerns, common entrance, common ideas in how to improve education. I know Nevada, sometimes we don't mention all of the wonderful things that are happening in our state. Our state has some of the best teachers I've ever met. And so our students are some of the most diverse linguistically and ethnically across the country. And so I feel that Nevada is a really rich state in terms of that diversity, in terms of what we bring forward. As a state, we are working on updating our funding formula so it's more equitable so that we can increase the funding. We know that'll translate into more student learning, better wraparound services, that kind of thing. Hey, listeners, if you need another podcast to keep you up to date on the world of education, check out Shaping the Future. My friend and colleague, Matthew Migo-Fields, sits down with industry experts to discuss how education and innovation can change the world. 
Subscribe to Shaping the Future on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Now, let's get back to the episode. With the shift of what we've all been through with virtual, hybrid, back and forth, what is something that you immediately knew you needed to do and think about to meet the needs of your students when you went virtual? And then what is something that you have been doing that you're continuing as you come back and have more of your students face-to-face? So I get to brag about Nevada a little bit right now because March to May was madness. It was March madness. (laughs) It was teachers looking for all the free resources and figuring out, okay, what platform do I use? What learning management system does the district want us to use? We don't know yet. This was such a big shift for everybody. So the first thing was the collective deep breath. And then we thought, okay, our students, we need to make sure that one, they're accounted for. Two, they have food. Three, let's inventory to see what technology they have at home to participate virtually. So March to May was kind of a shoestring, figure it out. The district did a great job of providing food for all of our students, which is wonderful. They didn't take breaks. They didn't take holidays off. They made sure that our students had food, which is really key. And they were great about teacher feedback because I would call them all the time and say, hey, I have this mom and that one school's too far. Is it possible to open up another? Or she has to work half an hour longer. Can you extend the hours? Or now that it's so hot. And the district was amazing about really responding to families' needs. And they provided that food over the summer as well. So then knowing that virtual learning was going to be the case for a lot of students coming back into the fall in Nevada. Nevada did a public-private collaboration to be able to ensure that all of our students had technology access. It's called Connecting Kids Nevada, and it was a very well-run system where families or schools could call this number. They would take a couple questions about the family, and then technology would be waiting at the school for them. So every single child had their own Chromebook. Every single family had their own Wi-Fi hotspot. And that was a game changer because then in the fall, we could plan for instruction to include all of our students. Because from March to May, I would have some students that were able to participate the first week every single day. And the second week, I was only able to catch them by phone and do phone tutoring. And it was just every child had a different scenario because if we all think back to whenever our state shut down, it was a day by day kind of a thing. So I was grateful to have really great relationships with all the families I worked with because I was just a message away. We were all super flexible with each other. I will say that teachers worked extraordinary hours and have continued to work extraordinary hours to make that happen. And while I'm really proud of our teacher workforce, I do wonder about the impact of that in terms of teachers' mental health, social, emotional wellness, all that good stuff. But, you know, we do what we need to do for our students. Having that change really formalized this virtual education that we were all engaging in. We still have some students that we're only able to get a hold of from time to time. It's not 100%. Nothing is 100% with these virtual systems yet. We're still working our way through them. We know some students do great virtually, and some families have asked for a continuation of virtual um, learning past COVID. And so I wonder how school districts can respond to those families. And we know some students need to be back face to face in order to learn 
effectively in order to learn to really close those gaps. And we're just going to keep doing it the best that we can because it's an ever-changing situation. I will tell you, I'm so excited to welcome students back. Even though we can't hug them, even though I won't be able to wipe away their tears, I'm so excited to have their energy back in the physical building. Some things that will continue regardless are what some people call blended or flipped learning, which means that some of the learning happens virtually, even if they're in your classroom. And allowing the kids to attend to their learning virtually allows them to go at their own pace. And I think that's a huge equity piece, right? Not all students are ready to have the same instruction at the same pace all the time. So a lot of high school programs do flip learning. And so I think that's something that's seeing its way into elementary school. We're also going to continue to do a lot of submission of work for our online learning management systems. I know some schools use Canvas, some schools use Google Classrooms, whatever the learning management system. I think that's a great thing to continue because it gives kids a chance to redo their work. It gives kids a chance to finish their work at a time that works the best for them, for their families to look at their work. It gives a lot more, it makes it a lot more dynamic. So those are some practices I'm going to continue The other practice I think is super critical to continue is equipping all of our children, regardless of their socioeconomic access, to technology at home. All families deserve to have access to internet and Wi-Fi and and devices to be able to learn at home. That's going to be a huge game changer, especially when we're looking at students who historically are scoring lower on test scores or they do a lot of studies about language in the home. It's going to be huge to parallel and to just bridge that. Have you been able to continue with the garden? I don't want to pry. Are you at your school right now or are you in a space in your own home that you've created. It's okay. Things are ever changing. <laughs> I do have a classroom set up in my home. And for a lot of the year, that's where I've been leading and teaching from. I am at a new school this year. So I did leave Crestwood last year and our district is just not going into hybrid. So I'll be honest with you, although our leadership journey takes us where it takes us. And so I'm, I'm happy to lead from this school and we are working on plans of creating and amplifying a garden program here at this school. I was very happy. One of my first thoughts when I learned that we were going to go into hybrid, which is this mix between distance and in-person, was that the students at my last school would have those spaces to be able to learn in because teachers were allowed to take our students outside. We still have to have the social distance. But what a beautiful way to welcome your students back than to welcome them into the garden. Yes, although I'm not at Crestwood anymore, I am very happy that garden will be there for as long as it can be to serve those students. The coolest thing is I live in the neighborhood. I live down the street from Crestwood. I fell so in love with that community that I moved in. I think it was like the second or third year that I was teaching there. And I bought a house with my husband down the street from the school. So it's beautiful when I walk on walks around my neighborhood. I see the garden every single day. Some of my dearest friends still teach there. And I see the families all the time. In fact, yesterday I saw two of the families just out and about. And we stop and social distance and all that good stuff. We talk and we touch base. Social media has made it wonderful that we have access to each other through Facebook. Yesterday, I just saw one of my past students have her quinceanera, her 15th birthday. They did like a drive-by thing. And so I got to see her. And so it's really beautiful that when you're able to build those relationships, they continue on whether the teachers left the school or whether the students have left the school. I'm really proud and, and happy to be able to draw back on those relationships that just keep on going.
Because I think every teacher needs to know that's one of the things that connects us. We've all had that experience of being seen in public. What's your teacher sighting experience? I absolutely embrace it because it just brings me so much joy. I think that we underestimate the power of being around a lot of people. And COVID-19 has taught us that. I don't know about some people, but I miss people. I miss just everyday people. I love communities. And for me, I, I always try to build with families, even if their their child wasn't in my caseload. I always tried to build with those families. And so part of my commute was getting on a cute little bike and riding my bike to school every day. It was a two minute bike ride. <laughs> but I felt so happy when I got to school because I would say hello to the families on my way. And it also gave me a superpower in my school. I'm not going to lie to you. The kids knew that I knew where all the kids lived. The kids knew that I would see their families at the grocery. And so they're like, uh-oh, you better watch out. She'll talk to your mom. She'll talk to your dad. She'll talk to your grandma. And I, I never abused that privilege. Don't worry. But I was really happy. A cute story <laughs> is one time we found this little three-legged chihuahua. I was actually on my way to get a sandwich at lunch, and I found him on the street. I'm like, oh, my goodness, this poor dog. I can't leave him on the street. But it was down the street from the school. And I said, somebody at the school has to recognize this dog. And that's what I did. I grabbed the dog after I got my sandwich. And I went to the cafeteria in the recess playground. And I said, does anybody recognize this dog? Sure enough, one of the kids is like, hey, that's my neighbor's dog. Great. After school, let's meet. We'll walk to your house and I'll deliver the dog back to the neighbor. And I just, I think that schools have tremendous power of being unifiers in the community. A lot of the time, schools are like vacuums and teachers come and they go. But when we blur those barriers and we just push past them, really beautiful things happen. And just pure love, right? It's a love for people at all age of the life cycle. You thought about, I know how to problem solve. My students know how to problem solve. And sometimes we have to take that chance and just keep it going. I want to come back a little bit to your relationship within your family and think about advice that you have for teachers at times when we're there might be multiple emotions happening and we have to pull ourselves back to not take things personally. What advice do you have for teachers who are supporting parents who don't have English as a second language? But you can read their face to know something needs to be shared or, or talked about. What advice do you have for being able to think past language barriers to know how to continue to make family connections? Absolutely. I think we underestimate the power of nonverbal communication. Like you said, you can sense when someone's not feeling heard. So I'll preface with I think that every single school should have a designated person who's a family community liaison who speaks the language of the majority of the families. I know some colleagues have schools that have over 40 languages in their school, so that could be challenging. But the school doing their best to make sure that all important documents, notifications are provided in the languages that their families require. The second is the power of learning. I think that when teachers try to learn, even if it's a few words, there's a lot of power in that. Families will feel, okay, we're trying to communicate. Another thing I think is really important for teachers to understand is that even if a family doesn't have English yet, it's not because they don't want to. 
I think we have to think about access and how difficult it is for some folks to acquire English as an adult. The second is to also understand generation, intergenerational healing that needs to happen. A lot of families that are multilinguistically gifted, they can tell you a kind of story where they felt um, excluded or looked down upon for their language, for their accent, where it's passed down to their children. I have colleagues who don't know their native language because their family was afraid that they would be discriminated against. So I think we have to look at that historical social context when we're looking at language and understand that in our context, English holds a lot of power. And so when you hold English and somebody doesn't, there's a power dynamic that whether we like it or not comes to the surface. So how can we push past that? We can look at power dynamics and look at horizontal power dynamics, right? Where we're all on the same level, regardless of language. So if all we're communicating to families in their native language is the protocols, the policy, the discipline, it's going to be really hard to create those horizontal planes where this com- communication can happen. If you have something like a garden or a family night where language isn't a requirement, right? Like anybody, despite whatever language you speak, can plant a sunflower seed and you can do it together. Everybody can shovel a garden bed together and you can find different things that everybody can do. I'm thinking about ability and and thinking about ability with an asset mindset. So I think that I know that I'm giving you a little bit more of a complicated answer, but I think that those are like the philosophical frameworks, education and education practitioners can start developing that will ease families into not feeling like the language, the mutual language barrier is their fault. The other thing is like the power of technology today is amazing. Google Translate and there's all sorts of apps that do simultaneous translation are really great. And if there's a couple words here and there that don't translate well, it's okay. Like we'll understand each other. So I think showing those kinds of efforts are really great. And knowing that our relationships aren't just for one school year, right? Our relationships could be lifelong. And if those relationships are lifelong, then we have a whole life to learn each other's languages. It's not just about the families learning English. It's about the schools also being accommodating and open and interested in their languages, too. I am in awe. I mean, I'm just struck by relationship of a lifetime and how, as teachers, we can all work and strive to get past only thinking of right now right here, this school year, this 180 days, and begin to think about that imprint and that continuation, you can tell that you still have a passion for bilingualism and the importance of that and leveraging that too as an asset and strength with students, special education students, especially with students who are learning language and are needing support with thinking and learning and and those ways that you might give them some strategies and support. Okay, so now what's your walk-up song? What song is playing to bring you to the stage in front of the class or up on your platform? So my husband is an amazing musician. His name is Olmeca, and he does bilingual hip-hop. He has a song called Browning of America, and it's about migrants embracing their power, of pushing beyond the, oh, we don't belong here. Yes, we do. Making our country 
look and feel like us. So I would walk up to that one and maybe I'll do that one on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday. <laughs> the other days I'd walk up to Santi Gold. I love her energy and her music. She's this like wonderful, I don't even know what genre she fits in, but she's all about the lady empowerment and her name is Santi Gold and she's my favorite. How cool that you your father was a musician, you're married to a musician. So without knowing anything more about your family, I know you've got to have a lot of music, a lot of talking, a lot of fun and laughing when y'all are all together. I wish you nothing but the best. I know that our listeners are just like, wow, she comes in with a punch. She's fascinating. Every time I talk with teachers, I have a list of where do I need to go visit first once I'm able to travel again? And I keep reprioritizing the list because everybody I talk to is amazing. But Juliana, you are amazing. You are filled with information. You brought a curious nature into the profession. I'm amazed. So Juliana, thank you so much. We're so appreciative of your time. Thank you so much for having me. I love talking with teachers and two teachers. It's been such a joy and I would be more than honored to come back in person or virtually and continue the conversation. If folks have questions, they want to reach out to me. I'm on Twitter. My at is U-R-T-U-B-L-J. And if you're doing national board and you need help or you just want to talk about something I said, feel free to reach out. Keep it going. Pass it on. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye. Take care. I only move when the people say it's movement. So assume that a rebel is your future president. Hey, listeners. Have you ever walked into a conversation where you're just like, wow, I have met my match. Someone that can just fire away, come at you with information have you thinking and jotting down notes? Juliana was all of that. Or as her students say, Miss Earth. What I want to encourage and reflect on is we should never discount each other based on our age, our length in the profession. Someone can bring it from year one and someone can still be bringing it and being awesome and learning new things and being innovative 25 years into the profession. We're a collective profession. Let's care for each other. Let's celebrate each other. And as Juliana shared with us, I encourage us all to go learn about a policy in your state that you weren't aware of and just start inquiring and finding where you might become more of an advocate. Until the next time, your friend, Noelle. If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on the Teachers in America podcast, please email us at shaped at hmhco.com. Be the first to hear new episodes of Teachers in America by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you enjoyed today's show, please rate, review, and share it with your network. You can find the transcript of this episode on our Shape blog by visiting hmhco.com backslash shape. The link is in the show notes. Teachers in America is produced by HMH. Thanks again for listening.